I wonder how important that makes me compared to them. Not very. They could turn me off, actually. (laughs) Turn tonight, if you would, to Acts chapter 23 while you're doing that. I want to really just remind you, we have now entered that period of time. Think about Paul's life for a minute. And as we get to chapter 23, I'm going to share with you again in chapter 22. Remember, it says the next day, um, Paul was freed. The commander comes and gets him out and he takes him. And can you imagine kind of this mix of jubilation that goes on in Paul's life? Because now he's going to get to go minister to the Jews. That was his whole desire. I mean, if Paul had a heart's desire, he being a member of the sect of the Pharisees, he's now going to get an opportunity to go before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish religious council, and and he's spent all of this time ministering to people, and he's really got it down. I mean, if ever there was a guy who had had plenty of time to practice his delivery and he'd sent out the message and probably for his whole life, he's now been ministering for nearly 20 years. And so after 20 years, he finally gets to go back to Jerusalem. And of all the people that he would want to talk to, it would be these guys because his heart is for his own people. I want you to notice what happens. It's a flaming disaster. We're talking... I mean, it's a crash and burn. It's not kind of it doesn't work. It's a man, it doesn't work at all. Can you imagine how discouraging that could be to the great Apostle Paul? Finally getting his big moment to do what he's always wanted to do, which is to present his case to to people that he really genuinely cares about, his brothers and sisters of the Jewish faith, and he he bombs like you can't believe. I want you to notice the secret. It actually ties into the last song that we just sung, because the Lord comes to him and he's near to him. In verse 11, and, and so as we're going through stuff, and maybe you've had this opportunity, maybe you feel like you failed at something, Maybe something hasn't gone the way you wanted it to. You prepared and did all that you could do when you were there, and you you did all these things that God wanted you to do, and it was a flop. It was a disaster. Would you remember at that time that the Lord's always there? And he still has a plan to redeem it, and we're going to see that in this chapter tonight, how God takes this, this great apostle, Paul, who wanted to minister to the Jews, but God had other plans. And so he gives him that opportunity It doesn't quite go the way it's supposed to go as far as Paul's concerned. But not only does God use it, God goes on to do greater things with Paul than Paul would have picked for himself. Never underestimate how the Lord can work in any situation that you happen to find yourself in. So would you pray with me tonight? Father God, as we again just draw our attention to your word and stop for a moment just to put ourselves maybe in Paul's shoes and to think what it would be like to finally get that chance. And Lord, to have it not go well. Lord, so many of us going through difficult things, we want to lift up our brother Jerry tonight again. Just continue to heal him, please, Lord. We pray it should mend his body and tend to his needs. And for my beautiful wife, Connie, I pray that you just raise her up and continue to heal her. Lord, I want to thank you for the prayers that have been offered up for us as a family and Lord, we thank you for your grace. It's been sufficient to get us through this time of sickness. And we pray for those that have come in tonight and maybe there's something weighting them down. Maybe a failure has befallen them this day. Maybe something that they wanted to go differently just fell apart. Lord, we want to draw from this beautiful passage tonight that you come to us in those times of need and you're near. And Lord, you do have a plan. We may not always see the immediate results of what you're doing. But we know we can trust you. And so, God, we commit this time to you tonight and pray that you use your word to speak to us, Lord, in a special way to each of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 30 of 22, as we draw these two chapters together, will be in 23 tonight. And the next day, the commander freed Paul from his chains and ordered the leading priests into session. Now, I want you to notice something. This is not the usual standard of practice. 
Okay, the commander of the Roman garrison is going to order the Jewish religious council together, chiefly because he doesn't know what to do with Paul. Paul's basically innocent. He's come to that conclusion. But there's so much turmoil going on that a series of events unfold in Paul's life, much like sometimes we in our modern world get thrust into situations that are not our doing. Maybe you've been falsely accused. Maybe you have had something happen in your life to where something has befallen you and it's really not your fault. The beautiful passage that we come to tonight in chapter 23 shows us how God is there even in the midst of difficult times. It's not all good that happens to Paul in this next chapter. But the Lord knew what was going on and he never lost sight of Paul. Paul didn't fall through the cracks. Paul wasn't all of a sudden outside of God's will. Sometimes, family of God, we go through things very specifically because we're in the center of God's will. And sometimes those things are worse because we're in the center of God's will. And sometimes they're more costly. Sometimes those things explode on us like we can't even imagine. We're well-intentioned. We mean well. We want to do good. But the enemy is seeking to destroy. And and I as I have been this last couple of weeks just tending to so many broken lives. I can tell you the enemy hates the church of God. The enemy hates you as individual believers. The enemy hates your family. The enemy hates your godly children. The enemy hates your witness in the workplace. The enemy hates you wherever you are. If you're standing for Christ, the enemy hates you. And he's going to do what he can to try and bump you off the track. He's going to do what he can to try and thwart the purpose of God in your life. And the beautiful thing in this passage is, as hard as it gets, Paul doesn't turn his back on the Lord. He doesn't know how God's going to get him out of it. He doesn't know what God's going to do. But he trusts in the Lord implicitly. And so the leading, the commander brings into session the Jewish high council. That would be the Sanhedrin. And he had brought Paul before them to try and find out what all this trouble was about. So the Roman commander is attempting to be a peacemaker to some degree, maybe get a little bit of his workload lightened up. And so verse 1 here in 23, which is our chapter for tonight. And then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, that word earnestly is antincesis, and it simply means to gaze fixedly or to draw attention to. We actually get our English word attention from it. In other words, Paul is looking at the Sanhedrin. He is gazing on them. He has nowhere else to look. He is just absolutely, I believe, thrilled in his heart that he's going to get a chance to present the Messiah of glory to his Jewish brothers. He's going to get to unfold the plan of God's salvation, the gospel message, to some people who desperately need to hear it. And so he goes on, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, as he says that, I want you to understand a couple of things. He is, in essence, on trial for blasphemy. That's why he's there. He supposedly, he remembers, defiled the temple, which he didn't do, but he certainly is on trial for his beliefs, and now he says to the very people who have power of life or death over him, I've lived in good conscience before God. It's a slap in their face, but it's meant to get their attention. What's he going to follow it up with? Well, we're going to find that out. And then the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. That's how blasphemous that statement was. Ananias, the high priest, decided, I'm not going to listen to this anymore. You haven't lived in good conscience before the Lord. You were a Pharisee, and here you're hanging out with these disciples who were the children of the way. They're believers in this phony Messiah that you have. You've defiled our temple. You are absolutely not innocent. But Paul knew he was innocent. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. When you have a clear conscience, yeah, this is not a good way to, you know, he's like, it's like 50 against, it's actually 40 against one we're going to find out here in a moment. But Paul is so convicted in his spirit that what he is about to say is the absolute truth that he's not going to take any lip. And there's a point in this for us as the body of Christ. There's sometimes when we must stand 
for exactly what the Word of God says. We can't waver, and sometimes it is a coarse message that must be stated exactly as God brings it. We're going through some of those things culturally in our world right now. We have a fault, we have a fight over traditional marriage. You can't cave in. We have a fight over what is, is, is the normal home. We can't cave in. It isn't two people cohabitating if they feel like staying together. The children have a mom and a dad. God's plan has been a mother and a father. It's been that way since Genesis chapter 2. We, we have to stand for that. We can, well, you know, I don't want to get in trouble. You see, Paul could have said something else other than you whitewashed wall. He could have said, well, you know, I, I guess I misunderstood you guys, you know. I, can't we just talk about it? Can't we all just get along? You know, don't all roads lead to heaven? You see, he could have taken that easy road. And he is standing before people who have literal obligation by Jewish law, life or death over Paul for blasphemy. And he chooses to take a stand. And that really is the picture that we get tonight in this chapter of one of boldness, but it's sanctified boldness. He said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And he's referring back really to what Jesus said to the Pharisees about being whitewashed sepulchers. He said, you guys, y'all, you look great. Now, we don't know, and we're going to find out in just a moment. I'm not sure Paul actually knew who was who in this crowd. Because the Roman commander called this meeting of the Sanhedrin together, I don't believe they were in their priestly robes. So I believe that Ananias was probably in normal attire and not wearing his high priest garment, because if Paul had seen that, he probably would not have apologized as he's going to do here shortly. And then Paul said to him, as he, I'll strike you, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? He says, you know what, I know what the Talmud says. I know exactly what the Jewish law requires in this instance. You haven't even brought a charge against me. How dare you strike me for speaking the truth? He had sanctified boldness. He's going he's to refer to it as his conscience. He says, I don't have any reason to fear you, is basically what he's saying. I have no reason to cower in your presence. I'm going to speak the message that God's given to me. I want that message to be the gospel, but let me be very clear, he's saying to, to the high priest. I trust in God. And whatever you've got to say, if it doesn't line up with what God's got to say, I'm going to believe what God's got to say. And so Paul is basically saying, I'm ready for the challenge, are you? And he reminds him that he has a duty before the law. I'm here today, in essence, he's saying, because I've been doing the work of the Lord. And you dare strike me on the mouth? You see, Ananias became the high priest in about AD 48. He's now roughly probably been high priest for 10 years. It's become a political office. Paul knows that. Ananias, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, was greedy. He was profane. He lived a vile life. And we know quite a bit of history about Ananias as the high priest. He was, he was not blameless before God himself. And so Paul wasn't going to just lay down and let the world trounce all over him. He, he was going to say what he had to say. And, and I think one of the wonderful things here is, is that we have an obligation as the body of Christ. When we see wrong, we have to stand up for what's right. We shouldn't just be caving in because it's going to cause us grief or problems or it's going to get us into some heated discussion with somebody. We need to speak the truth. And, and as much as we can, we certainly want to speak that truth in love. But there comes a time when you simply need to speak the truth. Many of those things are going on in our world today. Our, our nation, our, our president seems bent on abandoning Israel. It seems as though it's like become his number one priority. And, and nobody's wanting to stand up and say, what are you doing? Or, or have you lost sight of where we are as a country? Have you seen these things that are going on? And do you think that a government led by Al-Qaeda is going to be friendly? Or a government led by the Muslim Brotherhood is going to 
be in our best interest in the Middle East? Are you out of your mind? The body of Christ needs to stand up and say what needs to be said. Because nobody else is going to do it. It's up to us at times to be the bearers of truth. And when we know the truth, we need to speak the truth. Family of God, if we don't speak out as the church, where is salt and light in this world? If, If people like Paul, if people like you, who know the truth, won't speak up for the truth, then how does the truth get injected into the world? And I say to you, it doesn't. And I believe that is largely the problem that we've had in this country since the 1960s. The church fell silent. The church stopped speaking the truth. The church quit saying what might get it slapped in the mouth and instead said nice things that everybody wants to hear. Well, you know, I mean, after all, can you really expect two people to stay married for 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years? I mean, you just get tired of each other. Do you realize there are churches that say those very things today and they profess the name of Christ? It's blasphemous. We need to speak the truth. We need to stand for what God stands for. That's what Paul did in this passage of Scripture. You can't turn a blind eye. You can't follow the crowd. You must stand with the Lord. We must stand with the Lord. Verse 4, And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Now, I kind of like this next statement, because it kind of lets Paul off the hook a little bit. And I don't know whether it was a combination of maybe his eyesight, which we believe from early church historians writing, maybe it wasn't too good. Maybe the fact he wasn't dressed in his high priestly garments. And Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. There's also another reason why they may have not known, or Paul may have not known that this was the high priest he was talking to. Because he wasn't acting like the high priest. He was being an idiot. He was doing exactly the wrong thing. He was actually acting contrary to Leviticus chapter 19, for it says there, you shall not render unjust judgment. That's the high priest. And it says, you shall not be partial to the poor, defer to the great. With justice you shall judge your neighbor. That's what the 19th chapter of Leviticus says. That was the standard of the Mosaic law. You have to be just, you have to be fair, which means you have to allow that person the opportunity to bring forth their witnesses. Paul has had no opportunity to do that. He opens his mouth, whack. No, you don't. You can't. You can say anything, but whatever you're going to say, no, that's not going to happen. So maybe it was that the high priest wasn't acting like one. And he goes on to quote the original law, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. So Paul is looking at all this information and and he's really say, he's speaking to the heart of this issue. He says, come on, guys, we're going to have a discussion here. Let's speak from the truth. Uh, let's everybody put down our little partial things that we believe, and let's talk about what, what does God's Word say. You know, sometimes we have to do what we have to do, and there is no easy way to do it. I can tell you this, when you're confronting sin in someone's life, there is rarely an easy way to do that. When someone has embarked upon a journey which is contrary to God's law and contrary to God's word, and they're just pretty much bent on going that direction, when you stand between them and that sin, I can guarantee you they're not going to like what you have to say. They're going to react much the way the Sanhedrin reacts here. And so Paul is basically saying, let's kind of submit this whole thing to God's word. So he quotes from God's word. He says, you slap me. I'm telling you you're wrong. Here's what God's word says. Can I tell you that is a wonderful way to win most arguments? Because you're going to argue with God if you're going against God's word. And so far as we're talking to brothers and sisters in Christ, especially when somebody comes, well, I think I should do this. And you can quote to them chapter and verse where God's word says, no, you really can't do that. What argument is there against those things? And so we use the word of God when we have the opportunity really to render the the verdict for itself. Verse 6, he goes on to say, But when Paul perceived that one part, I love this, were the Sadducees and the other part were the Pharisees, 
he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Now, he, this, is, this is masterful here. He realizes two things, two principal things. Number one, he actually has some allies in the Pharisees. Because he can speak to see the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not. And so here are the Pharisees. He's basically saying to them, I'm one of you. And to the Sadducees, he's saying, hey, we have sufficient numbers here that you guys are in trouble with your argument. And so he's using the resources at his disposal in a godly way. He's using wisdom. He's exercising those things. He's opening up the door. And so by identifying himself as a Pharisee, a descendant of the Pharisees, he basically takes three basic tactics here and utilizes them. He opens the door for inserting the gospel because the chief thing that was different about the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to the Old Testament scriptures, as far as the Jews knew them, was the resurrection of the Lord. And so he uses that. Uh, he's going to get some sympathy. He's going to get some support from at least part of the council. And, and this ongoing controversy, he can now kind of shift off of just Paul and kind of get them bantering with each other. You know, one of the great things about having the truth at your disposal in God's word is when you interject it into a group of people who are there with you who also happen to believe it's the truth, it gets some of the heat taken off to you and other people take up part of the battle. So now he's kind of engaged some of his brothers in the, in the battle, if you will, that were of the sect of the Pharisees. In verse 7 he says, And when he had said this, notice this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So he's exercising tremendous wisdom. The assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And so Paul's tactic works. He, he begins to... You say, okay, well, you know, you're going to charge me with these things. You know, you guys don't exactly agree together. How can you be against me when you don't actually agree? And so those things which were kind of divisive between the two of those groups, between those two groups, rather, now became actually part of Paul's reason that he's not going to be judged quite so harshly because they now begin to fight amongst themselves. And I can tell you the truth does that. It's pretty interesting when you begin to put forth the truth and interject it into a situation. If you have any allies whatsoever, all of a sudden your allies are sitting there going, well, hey, I believe that too. So the Sadducees are going, I don't believe that. The verse is going, well, we believe that. And before you know it, Paul's just sitting there kind of watching like a tennis match. Resurrection? No resurrection. Angels? No angels. Evil? No evil. You see, the Sadducees were the liberal side of the Jewish religious leadership, and the Pharisees were the legalistic side. And they did not like each other as a general rule. And so the Sadducees begin to argue strongly that, yeah, you could, didn't hear from angels. You know, if you heard from angels, you were like hearing things, or you were on, you know, a little bit extra wine or something. So... Verse 9, and then there arose a, lar- a loud outcry. It actually says there in the Greek language, it says great uproar. In other words, this is really starting to cause a stink. And the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested. So now it's not only the Pharisees themselves, because see, the Sadducees and the Pharisees both had their own scribes because they didn't trust each other. So you can kind of see how you've got the Pharisees on one side. It's like they're divided right down the aisle. The guys on the right, they're the Pharisees. And the guys on the left, they're the Sadducees. And their scribes are in the back. And they're trying to write all this down on a tablet, probably a wax tablet with a little scribal instrument. And so here they are. They protest. We find no evil in this man. So they're getting involved in the whole argument. So they've actually already kind of lost the battle. We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let's not fight against God. He says, we believe that there are angels. We believe there are spirits. Paul says he's spoken to He's one of the Pharisees, so now these guys are actually beginning to defend Paul. It's a beautiful picture of how we use what we do have at our disposal at a time when these things happen, this great uproar. And here out of this, what you would think would be the crowd that's going to condemn him, comes his, his defense. And so the Sadducees are kind of on, they're on the run a little bit now. Verse 10, and now when there arose this great dissension, the commander, okay, so now the Roman commander's back. You see how complex this is. 
The Roman commander actually wants to let Paul go. But he can't because he's been accused of a religious crime. So he himself calls together the council, which he's not actually supposed to be able to do. Technically, they're not supposed to do it. We're not told that these guys are meeting legally. So there's kind of a little bit of a uproar then. Now, in the middle of this, the Sadducees, the Pharisees are arguing with each other. The scribes of the Pharisees are actually now saying, oh, you can't do that. The guy's innocent. And so this, this tremendous uproar, the commander, you can picture him standing up getting up on the steps with everybody else. He goes, quiet down, you bunch of knuckleheads. Fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So Paul's tactic works. Paul says, I'll get them fighting with each other. In the midst of getting them fighting with each other, knowing the commander is actually responsible for my well-being until these guys pronounce judgment on me, I've now got them arguing, I'm going to be okay. So the dissension, the standoff uh, goes on, and, and God steps into the middle of this. And so it really becomes a religious argument between two factions. And in the, in the midst of it, they lose sight of why they've even been brought together. So very often you'll find out when you put the truth out and people begin to kind of argue back and forth, they're going to lose sight of why they actually were angry with you in the first place. And they begin to banter back and forth with each other because the truth speaks for itself. Verse 11. So Paul now has been rescued. He didn't get an opportunity to do what he wanted to do, no doubt, which was to share the gospel with him. He got to fire a little dart out there. But verse 11, I love this verse, ties into our song tonight. Be near, O Lord. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, The Lord comes literally to Paul in a dark cell. It's a tough time for Paul. He's probably feeling defeated. Be of good cheer, Paul. Now, I want you to notice what he's going to say. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, I don't think that's everything Paul wanted to hear. But it was coming directly from the Lord. Paul, you've done what I've asked you to do. You're not the guy for Jerusalem. There's too much controversy swirling around you. Family of God, we are so uniquely fit together in the body of Christ that there are very specific things that God has left you here on this planet to do. And not all of us have been called to be evangelists or pastors or teachers or, or any other gift that's found in Scripture. There are unique gifts that are distributed in this room, and God wants to use them as he sees fit. Sometimes we ourselves think that we're called to a specific thing, but perhaps we're not. But God has a plan. And sometimes in these very difficult times, in those times when things are stirred up, maybe in that time when you don't understand why you're losing your house, in that time where you don't understand why you've been sick for six weeks, In those times when you you have your appendix burst and you're in the hospital and you're going, Lord, I'm serving you. In, In those times when you don't know why you're going through those difficulties you're going through, all of a sudden that uproar begins to stir and you think it's going to overtake you. And then all of a sudden God just snatches you out of that situation. He says, you know what, I've been here the whole time and I've got a plan to use you. This isn't it. I'm going to use you in Rome. Now, for Paul, that was kind of almost like a sentence of, you know, not good things. He wanted to minister to the Jewish people. He thought that's what he'd been called for. You and I, humanly, when we look at Paul's life, we would have thought the same thing Paul thought. Well, who better to minister to the Jews but someone who's of the sect of the Pharisees, who believe in the resurrection, who believe in angels, who believe in spirits, both good and bad. Man, if you're going to have somebody minister who knows the Old Testament, probably can quote the first five books, the Pentateuch by heart, you know, who better to minister to the Jewish people? But that wasn't God's plan. And you're going to find very often that the places that you get used in are not the ones that you yourself would have handpicked. But there are going to be places where you're not comfortable. There are going to be places where your particular gift set or maybe your personality or the things that you think you can do with some natural abilities are of almost no use. Way outside of your comfort zone. Very often you're going to find that God uses you where you are completely insufficient in and of yourself. And that was what God was doing with Paul. Because Paul's going to go to Rome. Yes, he's a Roman citizen, but he's really a Jew at heart. 
And so God's going to take him out of his comfort zone and put him and he's going to write that amazing letter to the Roman church, which you and I look back on. And I mean, if there's a gospel of grace in the New Testament, it's the book of Romans. Amen. It's like, man, here's here's who we are. The first three chapters showing us our sin nature and how far we've fallen from God. And then you get to chapter seven, eight. And you're you looking at we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. What can separate us from the love of God? You know, all these crazy things. He would have never gotten an opportunity to write that if he'd have stayed in Jerusalem. Never. It took him being in Rome to write those things. Now comes a plot to kill Paul. Verse 12 goes on now to say, you you see, Paul's going to move to Rome in verse 12, it says, and when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under oath. I love this. Paul slips out. He's now been gone for a day. It's a day later. They all get together. We're going to make a blood oath to kill him. Saying they would neither eat nor drink until they'd killed Paul. Now, bear in mind, why did they make that? Because he said what? He said, I'm a Pharisee. That's actually all he said. He said, I'm a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. Other than that, it's all hearsay. And they're going to kill him. So we don't know whether this was all Sadducees or whether this was the Pharisees and they've now come together because in times of difficulty, people who don't like each other will come together for a common cause. And sometimes it's very hurtful and hateful causes. And now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. You, you see, but the Lord had come to Paul. Now, now I love the, the order of these things because we already know by the word of the Lord what the Lord himself has already said to Paul. Paul, you're going to Rome. Now, when God tells you what it is that you're going to be doing in life, there isn't any weapon fashioned against you that can prosper. There isn't any way it can be thwarted. It's going to happen. To quote Gail Irwin, it's a foregone conclusion. Yeah? You you see, if God has foreordained something in your life, and he has purposed for you to do that, 40 guys can get together and swear an oath to kill you, and you're still not going to be dead. You can have all kinds of things that can be arrayed against you, and quite frankly, you're going to be invincible. Because the word of the Lord has been spoken in your life. And you go with what God's already called you to. These guys were zealous, for sure. I want you to know something. I'll just give you a little heads up. We won't see it until later on in the book of Acts. Paul's going to live another ten years. So these guys who were all stirred up and said, ah, we're going to make sure he's dead, not only are their plans going to fail, but God's, fails, God's plans are going to prevail. They're going to happen. It's going to come true. And and God's promises always stand. And sometimes we forget that because we look at circumstances. Now, would it not have been very easy for Paul to look at the circumstances and be shaken in his boots? I mean, he's he's under Roman guard. That's not exactly good. I mean, he finally told him, I'm a Roman citizen, so they're they're taking care of him at least somewhat. We're going to find out that actually the Romans now have kind of turned the corner and they're going to be nice to him, and eventually they're going to make it so that he has passage to Rome. But nothing about his situation cries out, hey, you're fine, Paul. Everything about his situation says, you're in deep trouble. But God, do you believe what God says to you? Do I believe what God says to me? Do you trust in the promises of God? He's been spoken to by the Lord. Now, you'll say, well, you know, I've never had Jesus come to me while I've you know, been asleep in a cell someplace and, and tell me this and so. Yes, you actually have. And it's called your Bible. It's filled with promises that apply to you as the body of Christ. All kinds of things that have been promised to you as the body of Christ. And so there are Literally thousands of things that you can look back. God has promised he will never leave you or forsake you, says the Lord. That's a promise to the body of Christ. 
Wherever you go, there I shall be also. Whether you descend into the depths of hell or rise to the highest heights, I will be with you, says the Lord. How about all the fear not promises? Fear not, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. How about no weapon fashioned against you can prosper? How about, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? How about all things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes? You see, God has spoken to you. The question is, are you going to stand on those promises? Or are you going to believe the stirred up crowd? Are you going to believe the things of the world? Now, the things of the world, admittedly, are pervasive, and they're often very loud, and they speak shouting at you. But that doesn't make the promises of God of no effect or null or void. They still stand. I will guide you with my right hand. My mercies are new every morning. You get the picture? We need to stand on the promises of God. That's all Paul's doing here. He's trusting God. He's saying, Lord, you said it, I believe it. And I'm going to go with what you said. Does he have any human circumstantial reason to feel that way? The answer is no. His life's a mess. There's all kinds of junk going on that he doesn't like, didn't cause, doesn't want to happen. But he's going to trust God anyway. Powerful, powerful lesson. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. He's in the darkest dungeon. Maybe you've been in a dungeon. Maybe uh, Jerry was in a hospital room. Maybe we, we've buried a baby. We, you know, we've had all kinds of dungeon-like experiences that we could look at and go, where's God? But his promises stand, family. His promises stand. No one can snatch them out of my hands that are mine. When the enemy comes against you with these kind of vocal attacks, remember the promises of God. They still apply. And they're to you. Just as much as they were to Paul. Verse 14 and says, they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, for we have bound ourselves under a great oath and will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. And now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though we were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we're ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, that is patently illegal. There is nothing right about what was just said. They have no power to do those things. There has not been a charge brought against Paul. They don't have any legal reason to do this. Not from a religious standpoint, not from a judicial standpoint according to Roman law. In fact, he's completely innocent, and some people in the crowd have actually said so. And so here's what's awaiting Paul, this group of 40 men planning to kill him. Now they're trying to turn the Roman commander against Paul. But I want you to notice something. God in you is always a majority. So 40 men, plus the rest of the guys that were there at the council meeting, plus the Roman garrison, plus all the stirred up crowd was not enough to thwart the plans of God. It's a wonderful picture of where we need to leave our hope and trust. That doesn't mean you're foolish. doesn't mean you're silly and dumb and you act without wisdom or prudence. It doesn't mean any of those things. Paul has not done that. Matter of fact, Paul apologized for insulting the high priest. He did his part. But he's leaving the results in the hands of the Lord. You have only been called to do your part. You leave the results in the hands of the Lord. And let God be God. This group of powerful, prominent movers and shakers who pledged to kill Paul were nothing against the hands of God. Paul had already told him, you must go preach in Rome. That's what God had said to Paul. Paul's trusting that. Paul's believing that. Quite frankly, we're utterly safe. We're completely invincible when we're in the center of God's will. Don't forget that. When you're in the center of God's will, you are as safe as you're ever going to be on this planet. God's appointed one time for you to die and then judgment. You make no bones about it. Why sometimes we're tempted to alter our plans according to things that really have no bearing on us as the church. 
We need to stand with the Lord. Verse 20, or chapter 23, verse 16 now goes, And when Paul's sister's son, so now comes his nephew, this is the only time in the entire New Testament when we hear of any of Paul's relatives. And so when Paul's sister's son had heard of their ambush, he's back in the crowd, we don't know because Paul was a Pharisee. It's high high degree of likelihood that this young man had grown up at least to some degree around the Jewish religious leadership. And so he may have been in the background of all of this, heard of their ambush. He went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And so now he's going to speak to Paul. I want you to notice how obscure is this plan? You know, sometimes we limit God to the things we can think of. Amen. You know, it's just like, well, God can't work unless he does it this way, because that's all I can think of. Things like finances, you ever guilty of that? Well, I don't know how it's going to happen, you know, because God is there. I don't know. Then all of a sudden, you know, oh, that's right. Sheep and cattle of a thousand hills, gold and silver in every mine, the earth and fullness of it. So that's the Lord's. So that's actually his resources. It's not just what's in my checking account. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. Amen? You see, we need not to stick God in these little tiny boxes. And so here, out of nowhere, comes somebody we have not heard of in the entire New Testament. This is the only time we find him, and he's going to disappear after this. Talks to Paul, and then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. Now, now this is this healthy balance of trusting in God's sovereignty and doing what you can do. Now, Paul could have said, Well, you know, I'll just trust God. Notice he doesn't just do that. And blind faith and, and stupidity don't go together. Okay? Some people think, well, I'll just be dumb and God will have to cover it. That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul does take the advantages that he has and uses them. It's just that Paul isn't sitting around trying to figure it all out for himself. Paul's thought likely is, now this is a God thing. I didn't even know I had a nephew. But my nephew showed up, and he's heard of the plot. So I'm going to send because I can't go anywhere, but he can. So I'm going to send my nephew to go and talk to the commander. I love this. This is, this is a perfect picture of balancing wisdom and prudence and faith and trust. We need to have all of those things in operation in our lives, not just one. It's not faith to say that when you're standing in the middle of the street and there's a bus coming at you at 65 miles an hour, I just trust God. I'm just going to stand here. No, because see, wisdom says bus, 45,000 pounds, probably generating, you know, 450,000 kilotons of force on my body, going to die. That's wisdom. Prudence is... Side of the road is only eight feet away. I can make that, even though the bus is going fast. You see, you, you, you have to use the things that God does give you. Because pr- part of God's plan is, move, stupid. <laughs> we balance those things. We don't just sit around and wait for everything. Where God has shown us parts of the puzzle. He's going, we do the things that we can do. It's just that we don't stress over it. We don't sit around, well, gosh, you know, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do this. And after all, this guy's a young man and nobody will believe him. And if I send him, I mean, nobody will listen to him anyway. Oh, woe is me. You see, he could have gone the complete faith route and said, well, I'm trusting God, so I don't need you. He could have gone the completely flesh route. I'm doomed. But he doesn't. He has perfect balance in these things. We need to learn this lesson. Use the things that God gives you, but trust in the Lord for the results. And sometimes those things are going to be little kids. Sometimes those are going to be unlikely vehicles that are going to work out for your benefit and for your blessing. I can tell you I've been taught a lot of things by children, especially my own. You know, things I'm just like, wow, where'd that come from? I think anybody who's a parent in here has had those epiphany moments where your children are speaking. You're going, I didn't know you were that smart. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, they're teaching you. They've got something to bring to the equation. Don't limit God's resources by going, okay, well, you're not old enough. God has spoken in times past through donkeys. He's more than able to speak through children. He can use almost anything given to him by faith. 
Verse 18, and so he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. And then the commander took him by the hand and went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? I love this. Because you can tell that God was already working on the heart of the commander by the way he handled this situation. Now, this guy's a powerful ruler. I mean, make no mistake about it. You know, this guy has serious power of life and death over all these people, and he doesn't have to listen to anybody. He goes, you know what, I'm too busy. I'm going to sit here at my desk in my Roman garrison. I'm polishing armor right now. I've got a couple of guys helping me, and, you know, just go away and come back tomorrow. But God softened the heart. God's already prepared the way. And you remember, part of the thing that we see in this whole story is the story of this commander. Don't underestimate God's ability to stick commanders of Roman garrisons in places in your life where you least expect it and you need that person. They're not even saved. They don't know the Lord, but God can use them anyway to save you. God can work in their life to work in your life. And so this kindness that this commander has and treats this young man with great respect in verse 20, he goes on to say, but he said the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink until they've killed him. And now they're ready and waiting for the promise from you. And so the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you've revealed these things to me. And so God is working through an unlikely tool to an un, another unlikely tool who isn't concerned really about the things of the Lord. But look how God's working in these people's lives. Now, if you were Paul, is this how you would have planned your escape? No. I would have had the whole garrison turn on the Sadducees and Pharisees and lock them all up. The 40 would have never gotten away. I mean, I can think of a million ways to work this out that are a lot more secure. Amen? But that's not how God does. Notice how God leaves an element of faith in this. Paul still has to trust God. He could have done what I just said. Well, it's lightning bolt strikes them all dead. The cell opens up kind of like the, the jailer and the Philippian jailer. You know, just everything opens up and all of a sudden everybody's free. He could have done that. But he doesn't. He leaves Paul trusting in the Lord and nothing else. Paul gets sent to, now to Caesarea Philippi as we finish this chapter up tonight. Guarded, notice this, by a Roman escort of almost 500 soldiers. And so he called for two centurions. Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third night, third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. You see, when God's got a plan to deliver you, God's got a plan to deliver you and you can trust it. Paul gets out of this in, a, in an amazingly unsuspecting way. We can't limit God by just simply limiting him to working the way we can think. And I've been guilty so many times in my life of cramming God in some little tiny box, and this is all you can do, God, because that's all I can think of. And now not only is Paul going to be set free and going to be given passage, in essence, to Rome, exactly what God promised him, but he's going to be protected by way more than the guys that are trying to kill him. It's kind of a picture of how God takes care of each of us. And he wrote a letter. This is the commander in the following manner. Claudius Listus to the most excellent governor Felix greetings. And so he uses his power actually to convey Paul uh, to go now. And he's going to spend the next chapter or two speaking to these various governing officials. And this man was seized by the Jews about to be killed by them. So he's actually now on Paul's side. He's kind of turned the corner. And he's coming with troops, and I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before the council and found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving death or chains. In other words, the Roman governor, or the Roman commander now has said he's totally innocent. I don't even know why this whole thing happened. 
And when it was told to me that the Jews laid in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you. And also that he commanded these accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. And so he writes to the Roman governor, Felix, and he's going to speak those words. And as we pick up next time in the next chapter, he's going to now again be given this opportunity in the Roman world to say the things he didn't get to say when he was talking to the Jews. And so then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipartus. And the next day they left with the horsemen to go with them, and they returned to the barracks. And when they had come to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and also presented Paul to him. And the governor had read it. He asked what providence he was from, and he understood that he was from Sicilia. And he said, I hear that your accusers have also come. And he commanded them to be kept in Herod's praetorium. And so the hand of the Lord is all over Paul's life. He's he's now going to get the opportunity of all opportunity. He is going to be in the highest places of government proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's protected by the Roman government now while he's going. Now, eventually he's going to be killed, but not before he gets an opportunity to do exactly what God called him to do. And I pray that we learn that lesson. When God's got a plan for you and he's put his hand on you and he's told you this is what's going to happen and he moves in your life, you can trust him to get it done no matter what the circumstances look like they may be dictating. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you and we cry out with Paul as he would write there in Romans chapter 8, what shall we say to these things of God before us? Who can be against us? And Lord, we want to walk in that a promised life of the way that you work in the life of your church. And so, Lord, we do trust you, and we pray that you would continue to work. Lord, show us your way. Speak to us, Lord. Uh, Give us encouragement. Send us uh, these divine appointments, Lord, of kings and counselors and kids. And we thank you, Lord, for your word and for the beauty of it. And we pray now that you would strengthen us as we go our way. And, Lord, we pray that you'd give us some divine appointments this week where we'd have opportunity to tell the world about you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for this time tonight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, family. We'll see everybody on Sunday. So we continue our journey in the pastoral epistles.